You're listening to That'll Preach. I'm Brian, joined by my co-host, Dr. Paul Riscala, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. This is part of a series we started last time, so you can check that out on our feed. But The Abolition of Man is a great book. It's actually a collection of lectures that C.S. Lewis gave about education, aesthetics, beauty, objective morality, all those fun things that we like to nerd out about. And uh, Paul, how, how are you doing? Are you enjoying this little series we're doing? Yeah, it's been super enlightening. It's been a while since I've read this, so it's been nice to come back to it and pull in all the little interesting nuggets and to hear your weird hot takes on what you found. interesting. I always, it's funny, like when I ask you what you found interesting, I can almost guarantee that it's going to be something different than what I found interesting. Really? Why <laughs> is that? It's just I, that I don't I'm, know. You just I'm, maybe weird... I'm, just, I'm just more interesting than you is um, the case. Or you just find weird things interesting. That's probably true. Well, we'll see what kind of weird stuff we can uncover today. But first, uh, how's the soccer team going, Paul? Oh, uh, semester's over. We're not we're not playing right now. Wait, what, so we, the last I thought you just started last week. We did. We, we had talk. a couple. We had a couple of friendlies, and the semester ended this week. Those were just what? friendly matches, and then we pick up again in the fall. Oh, so fall's when the real season starts. Yeah, yeah, we got 10 games in the fall. These were just two, yeah. For those of you who are just tuning in, Paul has become a soccer coach at Hillsdale. Intramural soccer, right? Not not a... It's not intramural. It is uh, club soccer. So we play other universities. Yeah. Okay, there you go. And so far, prospects aren't looking good. Don't don't say that. We've got some of my students who listen in on this. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. Okay, great, great, great. Now, which one of your students are actually good? You you're doing you're do, doing great, guys. Yeah, Sam yeah, Schaefer, there you go. well done. Okay, there you go, Sam Schaefer. Gotta, gotta gotta love the Schaefers. Oh, you gotta like jump, like you gotta like freak out one game and just jump in and start kicking the ball. You know, <laughs> just like act, just be like, I'll show you how it's done. I'll do it myself. In my Bust in my in uh, my work shoes and my work clothes. No, you should. When as a coach, you should go dress up in like a full suit. Like in basketball, you yeah, know what I'm talking right. about? Yeah, yeah. Go and out then, there, act like you're the boss, and then school the kids on the, the art of soccer. Were you a pretty good soccer player back in the day? Um, Defined pretty good. I played I played in high school. Did people that fear counts. your name? Yes, but for other reasons. Duh. <laughs> okay. Paul's a serial killer. All right. Paul's back. Paul's back. Yeah. People, it's like you show up like, oh, it's Paul. <laughs> we always joke about that. Paul's from Brooklyn, and we always joke that when he goes back to Brooklyn, people are like, oh, shoot, it's Paul, and they start hiding. You know, That's not, Paul that's not far out. from the truth, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Paul's a mysterious and dark past. Exactly. Um, but uh, anyway, all right, so Abolition of Man, Chapter 2, The Way. Paul, you want to just, just bring us up to speed. What is the Abolition of Man about so far? What are some of the things that Lewis is trying to educate us on? Yeah, so the first chapter is really a critique of subjective aesthetic value. This idea that we can't call things beautiful in an objective, um, non-personal sense. And in chapter two, he extends this to morality. And he wants to build this case a little bit in the first chapter, and he does some more in this chapter, that there is like a common set of truths and values that all cultures share. And he calls this the Tao or the way. And he thinks if you look at 
Confucius's teachings and Hindu teachings and Christian teachings, Jewish teachings, and even sort of secular humanism, you get this like overlap of common truths about the world, some of which are moral, and they're just basically our, our basic, most fundamental values, the things that they would be ridiculous to doubt, right? Or at least that's what most people thought for a long time until the latter half of the 20th century. And here he's responding to these people who are trying to, well, well, how do we know that murder is really wrong? How do we really know that um, preservation of the species is good? And so he's kind of trying to push back against that kind of the, the who, who are you to say? Who are you to judge? How do we really know this, right? That line of questioning that Lewis says is just wrong-headed. That's the wrong place to start. We have to begin by assuming certain things and building off of the, the most secure foundational principles of knowledge rather than thinking that it's somehow wise or, or profound to question everything. He thinks that's just, it's stupid. And it is. Well, he talks about how reality is objective. And he starts with the idea of beauty. You know, like a, a waterfall or a sunset. It's beautiful. It would be beautiful if no humans ever existed and the world was just unpopulated. It would still be objectively beautiful. And his idea is that these new new school intellectuals are basically saying, no, when you say something's beautiful, all you're saying is this thing gives me feelings. Right. These things give me feelings of pleasure or whatever. And <laughs> it, it's not actually objectively beautiful. It's just stuff falling at a certain rate. And that's all it is. And Lewis is like, well, that seems kind of harmless, maybe in some sense, but taken to its logical conclusion. And the only reason that killing is wrong is because it just makes you feel bad. And there are many problems with that, that we can't base our morality subjectively, just based upon our experience. But then he also says, that's not saying that experience is bad. The goal is that our subjective experience of things should match their objective reality. So because a piece of art is beautiful or nature is beautiful, we should forge in ourselves the kind of character that finds those things beautiful, that subjectively we should find them beautiful because they're good, that our, what we see should match what they really are. And the flip is what's evil and ugly, we should find evil and ugly so that our subjective experience of things should match what they objectively are. And really what he's talking about is the purpose of education which is to train our senses. I mean, I, I think a way to think about it, and I'm, I'm not sure if he mentions this or somebody who commented on this <laughs> mentions it, but the whole point is that our reason controls our appetites. That's the whole idea. We have these appetites, these impulses. We want to do certain things. And he's like, look, you shouldn't just follow every impulse or appetite. That's not good because some of your impulses and appetites want, cause you to do immoral things. Your reason needs to be able to control your appetites through the emotions and through your will. And so training your affections is a way to control your appetites. And that kind of leads into number two or, or chapter two when he talks about the Tao. Like you said, basically the Tao is, like you were saying, this objective morality that all cultures seem to have agreed upon. Things like it's good to sacrifice yourself for the good of others. Uh, it is bad to murder. It is good to have order. Right. Um, all kinds of things that culture seem to take for granted that aren't even Christian. And uh, that's something that he really wants to hold on to and say, if we just say that the Tao, if we just say that these objective things that culture have done are just things that could be otherwise, then we're really on shaky ground. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and more than just shaky ground, it's that you can't have any knowledge at all. If, if you start doubting these kinds of claims, Lewis would refer to these claims as the most fundamental, the things that are undoubtable, literally, if, if you doubt them, then you're, you're doubting your ability to know anything else at all. And so if you want to go this skeptical route, not only are you on shaky foundations, you're on no foundations at all. There's no way for you to ever secure knowledge once you go that, once you take the skeptical pill and go that far. So the, the ramifications are, are really large. Well, the whole thing is self-defeating. I mean, if you say that we're supposed to be skeptical about traditional values and you ask, okay, why? And at some point you're going to have to say something like, well, because I think it's a good thing to be skeptical about it. Well, then you've just made a value judgment. Or you can just say, I don't know. I just feel like it should. And then you're not really saying anything. So the very claim that we should be skeptical is assuming that being skeptical about the traditional values is a good thing. It's still going towards an end. We're trying to figure out what actually works. And that's the point that he says where in the beginning he says the important point is not the precise nature of their end, but the fact that they have an end at all. Right. If you if you're kind of, you know, for the person who says, look, I, I don't think humans have any purpose. Um, I, so I don't think it's worth you know, looking into it or all we are are just atoms interacting with nature or whatever. Well, you still really want to prove that point to people, don't you? Or you still feel like it's important to know that or to realize that. So there's an end to your goals no matter what. And the question is, why do you think that's a good end? And you can't really support that on the view that they're talking about. Yeah, one, um, he talks about having an open mind and how we use this term a lot and we sort of there's a positive stigma associated with it, but there's something to be wary of in having an open mind if we go too far. So Lewis says, an open mind in questions that are not ultimate is useful, but an open mind about the ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or practical reasons, is idiocy. <laughs> that's that's Lewis's term. Yeah. If a mind's man is uh, if a man's mind is open on these things, let him let his mouth at least be shut. And then later he says, wherever any precept of traditional morality is challenged, um, we have taken the wrong position. Like, basically, we should never be at a skeptical point where we're challenging the basic fundamentals. Um, asking why, who said so, uh, who's to judge, right? Like, this sort of line of questioning is wrongheaded because it assumes that we can never stand from a vantage point to look at, like it assumes there is no vantage point from, from which we can even stand to begin looking at the rest of our values. And one of the things that Lewis points out is that there has never been, this is the quote, there has never been and never will be a radically new judgment of value in the history of the world. What purport to be new systems, or as they now call them, ideologies, all consist of fragments from the Tao itself, arbitrarily wrenched from their context in the whole, and then swollen to madness in their isolation, yet still owing to the Tao and to it alone such validity as they possess. So what he's saying is you create a new system where you're like, okay, here's a new system of morality. Well, we're still going to say that killing is bad, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep that, but we'll throw out different other aspects of morality, maybe uh, restraint on sexual activity or things like that. And he's saying all you're doing is taking something that works together and ripping it up and you can't create that. But, but I mean, why can't you create that? Why can't you say, let's get rid of, I mean, doesn't our understanding of morality progress in some way where you can take the good pieces from before and get rid of some 
ideas that people thought were moral. I mean, you could take the idea of people used to think that segregation was good and then morality evolved. That doesn't mean that you have to throw the whole thing out. It just means you change it. Like what, what, would, what would you say or what would Lewis say to that? I think what Lewis would say is what you're doing there is you're still working from within the Tao. So Lewis's big criticism is against is against what he calls putting a pistol to the head of the towel. Like you can't get rid of objective value. You can't get rid of this entire body of ethical facts, ethical values. If you do try to shift something around or move something um, and say, we want to get rid of this, you're still doing so because you've prioritized some other value. You've said that, for example, personal autonomy is more important than sexual um, fidelity or chastity, right? So you've reorganized things, but you're still using the same raw materials of this framework to even make that conclusion. So his, his big point is that whatever secular morality you're looking at, it's still going to involve working within the Tao because it's still assuming an objective framework. It's still using the same values. It's just reprioritizing them, right? Like no one thinks that um, there's no ethics in sex, right? It's just, it's just reshifting what sorts of, we're prioritizing autonomy or liberation over uh, chastity, loyalty, fidelity. Like, so, it's not that there is no sexual ethic. It's that the sexual ethic was changed by prioritizing different elements right. of the Tao. We can't create a new set of morals. We're just going to emphasize some over the other. Yeah, yeah. And, and he, he even says this. He says, if we lump together the traditional moralities of East and West, Christian, pagan, Jewish, shall we not find many contradictions and even some absurdities? I admit this. Some criticism, some removal of contradictions, even some real development is required but these are two very different kinds of criticism. So it is still one criticism, like, yes, we, like you can you can work a system and change it from the inside to, to remove contradictions between the Christian and the Jewish system, or maybe one has a better way of understanding the world than the other. But that's different from saying we get rid of the whole project together, which is different than, I mean, Lewis is trying to push back against this kind of relativistic thinking. The the Green Book, the, the, the postmodern way of saying, let's get rid of all value. It's just... Uh, my subjective personal preference, that, that is an untenable view because it means that we can't know anything at all. Now, it's different if you want to say, let's, let's assume objective morality, but I disagree with you, for example, about some specifics of sexual ethics. Now we can work within the Tao, within the framework, to try to figure out what's the correct answer, right? You and I both agree there's a right answer. Now we're trying to figure it out, right? It's different if you, two mathematicians who disagree on a math, math problem are trying to figure it out, they both think there's a right answer. Versus one person who thinks there is a right answer, one person says, no, like math is not, you know, there's no answers there. It's just you decide whatever you want, right? Like you can't argue with a person like that. Right. So we could actually grow in our understanding of objective morality through reasoning, but we can't reason unless we actually think there's something to reason to. But if we think that everything's just subjective, then you don't even need to have an argument. It's just that, well, that's true for you and this is true for me. Is that right? So the Tao is something that's inevitable. You're either gonna be using elements of it or you're gonna ignore it, but then you don't even have a conversation. And nobody can make a claim that something is objectively right or something that's you know, objectively beautiful. Uh, Lewis says, the human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color, or indeed of creating a new sun and a new sky for it to move in. So you can't actually create new values, like they're trying to say, like, let's ditch the old and come up with a new ethic. And if you really look at the past where you could say, well, look at how the traditional ethic led to this. What you'll find is often it's that the people in the past did not follow their own ideals. 
That's the issue. It's not that the ideals are wrong. They just didn't follow them or they didn't apply them all the way. So you could think about something like slavery or segregation or racism, all those things. It's not that the old values were bad. It's that the way that people practice old values or maybe even what they thought were old values or, or maybe they didn't take to the final conclusion what their values were. So all men created equal. Well, that's a good value to keep. But they just didn't apply it all the way. And that was the error. So the problem wasn't in the Tao. It wasn't in the objective morality. The problem was in the people who were trying to apply it. Right. And, and, and Lewis even is skeptical that these relativists are true relativists. <laughs> he yeah. says that uh, the skepticism that they endorse is only on the surface. For it's only for use on other people's values about the values current in their own set. They're never nearly skeptical enough. And this is true. You often find this with people who, you know, they say, don't, uh, who, who are you to judge? Morality is just subjective. Um, you just got to find one hot button issue that they really care about. And all of a sudden you will see where their allegiances lie. Like they, they definitely have moral views. Um, and so the skepticism that we like to think we hold, we always hold inconsistent. We always hold it for other people's views. We're very reluctant to, to use the same measure on ourselves. Or when people so, say, yeah, it, yeah, when people say like, oh, yeah. you are so judgmental. It's like, wow, what a judgment on me. <laughs> you know? Right. And right. it's it's unavoidable. And I think a lot of times people, when it comes to sort of how people talk today, people hate hypocrisy. They hate when you have a standard for other people that you don't have for yourself. It's sort of just like, you know, number one, I need to be heard for my voice. Number two, you shut up. Right. It's like, well, that's not how it works. Right. If you if one thing I always think about is when somebody has a really strong opinion about something and they feel like they're not being heard by the other side, it's often good to ask them, well, who are the people you listen to on the other side? And if they say, well, nobody, it's like, well, then you're, you're just doing the same thing that, that you don't like done to yourself. I mean, it's kind of like the golden rule. If you want to have a hearing, then you need to give other people a hearing. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but it does mean that it goes both ways. And, uh, and I think Lewis, it sounds like he's really given them a hearing. He really understands them on their own terms. And actually, be, because he understands, because he's heard the other side and he understands it so well, he can actually launch a very devastating critique of it. So that's actually helpful, too. One of the good things about sort of what, they, what people call straw manning or sorry, steel manning, which is the opposite of straw manning, where you, you try to argue against the best arguments of the side you disagree with. One of the best things about that is if you really start to understand where they're coming from and then you can critique it, it's even more devastating. It's even more potent. And uh, otherwise, it just turns into just being a troll or it just turns into a superficial kind of argument. Um, but Lewis, I think, does a good job. He, he really gets where they're coming from. And he's what he's doing, he's saying, because I understand what you're saying, if I take this to its logical conclusion, this is where it's going. Right. He actually understands their position more than they do. And that's yeah, pretty impressive. Absolutely. It is. This is why um, one assignment I like to give to my students is I tell them to go find someone who uh, both disagrees with them and knows the issue better than them on, on whatever issue they want to talk about, right? Um, and to go read that person and just write down one thing that they learned from that individual. And it's really hard. Like they'll say like, oh, I can't think of anyone. Or I read it and all I can think of were 14 objections, right? We, we don't naturally... Um, we're not naturally able to find good things or even charitably reconstruct someone else's view because our instinct is always to, 
to disagree or find an objection, which there's a healthy place for that. But the first step is I can't disagree with you until I know your position really well. And so I can steel man it or reconstruct it charitably like you like you said. And I think how Lewis does really well in this in this picture. And so what, if we want to talk about like a good model for civic dialogue, um, this is one way to do that. Make sure you understand the person's position really well. You're giving the strongest version of it and then proceed to uh, criticize it with an eye towards uh, being constructive and towards moving the conversation forward. So, man, look at that. Lewis is just teaching us life lessons all over the place. Well, and I think a, a great thing to learn from Lewis is that understanding your opponent doesn't mean you can't learn from them. I mean, I think he's understanding certain aspects and he's going, look, I understand where they're coming from, but I don't think that they've done the work of going all the way on what they're actually saying. And I think yeah. confirmation bias is everywhere. You mm -hmm. know, I think confirmation, and there, uh, there's this book called, I think it's Think Again. It was one that was recommended to us by one of our friends. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I was reading through it and, it and it had this interesting study where they, they found that people with high IQ or really smart people actually have the hardest time rethinking things. Mm. And they can often be too dogmatically attached to ideas when actually there's a better way or there's a new idea that kind of is more accurate. So mm -hmm. being smart doesn't mean that you actually come to the right conclusions all the time, which I found to be an interesting way to look at it. Um, yeah. But the hard thing to me is like, well, when do you stick to your guns? You know, nobody can just be purely like Lewis is saying you can't be purely open minded. Um, but how, how do you do that? How do you how do you be open minded while still sticking to your guns and sticking to what your instincts about what is true? That's a really tough question. I don't know. There's no easy answer. And I think part of it is, it's not about, I don't think sticking to your guns is a virtue. I think that the pursuit of truth should be the ultimate sort of tendency that we want to cultivate. So it's more so than just being open-minded. It's more so than just sticking to your guns. We shouldn't want to cultivate either of those for its own sake. Like it's not, it's not a virtue to like explore. It's not a virtue to be dogmatic. The virtue is to care that you know things and that truth is, is important. Um, and so that's why I think part of it is um, it's a moral failing when someone is overly dogmatic and it's a moral failing when someone is too open-minded, never settles on anything. So it's about character too. And these two things are really closely tied in, which is what Lewis is trying to say in that first part of Abolition of Man, that part of teaching and part of a good education is giving people the right sorts of moral sentiments and the right character so that they can go into the world and care about truth and begin to sift truth from falsity. But it involves character, right? You can't be an evil person and be like a brilliant genius, right? Like you're, you're going to cap out somewhere. Similarly, you can't be a really good person and believe conspiracy theories and believe everything that someone like everyone challenges the mainstream. You all of a sudden gravitate towards that. So the, the, the virtuous person, the more we're inculcating virtue, the more likely we are to see truth and recognize truth when we see it. Well, a lot of cultural issues shape how we look at morality too. And mm -hmm. I think this kind of goes to the confirmation bias. If you kind of want a conclusion, you're going to find it. And right. it's very hard to kind of slay your own, you know, favorite ideas for the sake mm -hmm. of what's actually true. And I think right. that is a discipline that you can do. I mean, I think sometimes people think that everything's so everyone has an opinion, everyone's got, are convinced of their things, how can any of them be true? Well, that doesn't follow. 
some people could just be really mistaken. Yeah. And one of the things is, well, have you actually tried to think through this? It might be difficult, but because it's diff just because it's difficult doesn't mean you just throw your hands up and go, oh, there's no morality, there's no way to know the truth, all that stuff. Well, just because it's difficult doesn't mean that it's impossible to know something truly. Right. And the other thing is to be honest about the way that culture shapes you. And I think that this is something Lewis talks about. He talks about how modern people view things like sexual morality in a very pragmatic way. So mm. in, the, in the old days when you didn't have contraception or birth control or any of these things, you had to be careful who you, who you had sex with. So right. that's what the old morality was for. Save sex for marriage. It makes sense. It's practical. But now that we have contraception, now that we have birth control, all these kinds of things, now we're in the modern world. We don't need that old morality because we don't need to we don't need to protect people against that anymore. There's ways to do that on their own. So now you can have hookup culture. You can have divorce culture, all these kinds of things. It doesn't matter. And he basically says that our morality is basically what he calls it instinct. We just mm -hmm. sort of have this instinct of like, oh, well, you know, because we really want to have sex or we have this sexual desire, it makes sense that why would he have this instinct if it wasn't right? And maybe it would have been harmful to go off that instinct in old times, but we've we've handled that now. So now we can just give right. full reign to our instincts. What's the problem with that? I mean, what does he talk about with regard to your instincts? I mean, the problem is we've got competing instincts. Like there's no, it's never the case that we just have one thing that we want to actualize. And Lewis brings this out. The person who's uh, who loves cigarettes, for example, loves cigarettes, but also like cares about their health. And if you're just going based off of your instinct, it doesn't tell you which instinct to endorse or to live on. Like, do I do I take the instinct that says go for the cigarette? Do I take the instinct that says I want to preserve my life? Like, which one of these do I act on? And that's why Lewis thinks that the answer is practical reason, right? Like, there has to be something that goes over and above the instinct to tell us which one to act on, but we can't just live based on instinct because we'd be sort of a contradiction. We wouldn't know which one to actualize. Even in acting on instinct, we have to bring reason to bear on which instincts we're trying to act on. And people's instincts will differ across, different people have different instincts, and so it's not, it's not reliable, um, both within us and when we compare person to person. He also makes the insight that we actually don't feel like we should go off of our instincts. Right. I mean, he says, if we must obey instinct, then why is this book even written? Why write a book about how we're supposed to just follow our instincts? And mm -hmm. I think instinctually, ironically, I think we have this intuition that we shouldn't just follow our base desires. Right. You know, I think even today people are like, well, no, I don't think it's right for me to like betray my spouse. There's a guilt attached to that. Or I don't think it's right to, you know, go party while my kids are at home or something like that. I mean, there's basic things that we go, yeah, even though I have a desire, I, I, or in a sense, I have two desires. I have one, a desire to be at home, taking care of my kids. Two, I have a desire to go party. Why do mm -hmm. we pick one over the other? Well, you have to have something beyond just your feelings because your feelings are going in two different directions. Or, or if you feel more towards one, is that good or bad? Right. I mean, on the, on the view that Lewis is arguing against, if you really want to just go party and not take care of your kids, it's okay for you to do that because that's the greater instinct that you have and you should go with what you feel the most. Mm -hmm. I think about, uh, I read this story about this woman who like wrote about how she left her husband of like 14 years because she met this guy at a conference that she was at with her husband. Oh and she's my a, gosh. you know, she, she's a life coach, which, you know, <laughs> whatever, who, who <laughs> knows what that means. All. Right. But yeah. 
And I was like, wow. And she's writing this as if it's this great journey of self-discovery. And she's just like, oh no, like I leave my two kids, my husband, because I have to follow what makes me happy. And it's like, well, I guess most of us would be like, I don't think that's right. But when Lewis critiques his opponents, his opponents would have no reason why that's wrong. And I think even increasingly today, it's seen as liberating. And uh, I think that's a dangerous place to go. It's seen as, we, we sort of chalk it down to living authentically, right? Like if, if, you, if you're shackled, if you're in a marriage and you've got kids, and, but you feel like you really want to be with this other person, you're not being authentic. You're not living true to who you really are. So Simone de Beauvoir, actually the, the French existentialist philosopher, she says that there is no such thing as uh, the, the true deep self. Like there is no such thing as who you are deep down that you have to try to find and live up to. So I think, I think Lewis's critique is, is spot on that the things that we have to endorse and what reason tells us to do um, are not in conflict with our happiness, right? Because there is no um, hidden self of who we are that we have to try to find to actualize. I think that our happiness consists in just um, living living sort of in the everyday. And we don't have to try to embark on this weird, like you said, the life coach, the spiritual quest, trying to find who I really am. Like that's just, it's weird. I think that's inauthentic. It's its looking for something that's not really there. And if we live in the, in the here and now, uh, making interactions, relationships, like living in community, like that that's what good life can, like happiness is there, right? It's not this elusive thing that you have to look deep down for. So, um, yeah. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting that this uh, feminist writer wrote that because I think that there's a, a branch where it's just sort of like, you know, if you're not again living authentically, you're living a lie or something like that. And mm-hmm. you often find that people who are just sort of like free spirited, living just how they feel, they live very chaotic lives because you, it's <laughs> not sustainable. Yeah. And ultimately, it's very selfish. It's a very selfish way to live. Um, and you at some point you're going to have to justify why just living based on your feelings, your emotions is good. Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, you're authentic. I mean, why is that good? Who says that's good? You say it's good. Well, why should we listen to you? Good compared to what, you know, what's the standard we're using here. And, um, it's amazing that Lewis is writing this over 50 years ago and he kind of sees things on the horizon. And what I love about Lewis is I think he gets that, you know, ideas trickle down. That something starts as just a questioning of whether there's objective beauty. And he can see that if we keep going down this trajectory, you know, being one degree off 50 years down the line is going to be 80 degrees off. You right. know? And I think he's got insight into, into where these ideas are going to go. The next chapter, I think, is where he really shines. Because in the next chapter, he talks about the abolition of man, what that term actually means. And it's about how when we remove objectivity, we're destroying our humanity. Uh, We're destroying the fact that we're finite creatures. And I think something that Lewis really, that kind of threads together all these lectures that he does, is that human beings aren't self-generating. That everything we have is derived from something beyond us. Our morality is not something generated by us. It's something that we receive and embody that our lives, our physical bodies were given to us, our minds, our intellects, everything, we we come into a world that's already in motion. And 
the goal of education, the goal of thinking, is to align our mind and our wills to reality. And he makes this interesting observation that with technology, it's changed. Now we think that we can make nature align to what we want. And from there, mm -hmm. you can see all the kind of issues of transgenderism and the sexual ethics of today and even to things like abortion and, and all the kinds of uh, materialism that we have today. And Lewis is spot on, again, decades before any of this really comes into the, to the for forefront. But fascinating stuff. If you guys like this podcast, make sure you subscribe, let someone know about it, and make sure you pick up a copy of Abolition of Man. It's well worth the time. It's a short read. Go pick that up, and we can put a link to the book in the show notes. Thank you for listening. We'll see you guys next week.